You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey, fan people. It's your host, Aaron Roverman, reminding you that this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. And the thing I love about comics are the crossovers. You know, those intercompany crossovers, DC versus Marvel, Batman versus Spider-Man, Spawn versus Daredevil. I mean, really, the sky's the limit. But I miss them. They don't happen so much anymore. But on the retail side, Harry Tarantula has a crossover on its own. You can go there for your comics fix and your cryptocurrency because they now sell Bitcoin. So you can get Batman and Bitcoin. It's pretty great, especially when people like uh, City Councilor Norm Kelly are talking about maybe paying your taxes in Toronto, your parking tickets, those sorts of things with Bitcoin. Now, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, it's a decentralized currency. Leon can tell you all about it. As he says, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. So go over there, get your comics, get your cryptocurrency, get your Batman, get your Bitcoin, and tell Leon that Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman, and it's another special Comics on Comics episode. Don't forget to look us up on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. We're sponsored by Harry Tarantula that gives us amazing support. But with Comics on Comics, if you've never heard one, we get comedians in to talk about comics and superheroes and just geek out with me a little bit. Today, we have a very special guest, Steve Kersner, who's the creator and executive producer of Ed the Sock. If you're a 90s child, you'd know him from Much Music and his acerbic commentary on shows like Fromage. He was also on City TV for Ed and Red's Night Party. And now he's on YouTube. He's doing a show called Ed the Sock Lives on the fun network, the FU network, if you will. He also does a political podcast called Stephen and Stephen. So welcome, Steve. It's nice to have you in. Thank you. I just want to uh, correct you off the top, just because everyone always says 90s. And yeah, Ed first came to people's knowledge in the 90s. Right. But Ed's most popular years on Much Music and City TV were the 2000s. Okay, talk to me about that. It's just interesting. People people associate with the 90s, but... It took some time to get traction on City TV and Much Music in the 90s. Uh, started in 94 on City and Much, but Ed, when we finally checked the ratings to compare with American shows like Leno and Letterman, Ed's Night Party on Fridays was beating Leno and Letterman. We didn't check that until 2000 or 2001. And our ratings were, were, were huge uh, on City and Much Music right through until uh, I 
quit Much Music around 2006. And then we ended on uh, CDTV 2008 because of a new owner and rebranding uh, of the channel. It was basically a, a lobotomy and castration at the same time that they did to CDTV. But it's funny that people always say 90s. And it's like, no, it's popular not that long ago. You know, it was at the height not that long ago. And also, it's probably easier at the top rather than saying fanboys and fangirls. Nowadays, you should just say fan persons. All right, fan persons. Because, you know, because it's not binary anymore. That's true. That's true. And, you know, you never know who you're offending in this day and age. That's like, true. Say, oh, you're, you're not including me. Fan persons. Yeah. And like nobody's wrote in so far, but they might. So. Yeah. You know, listen, uh, <laughs> any day now, you've just dodged the bullet. Okay. Any day now, people are so sensitive. They're look, People go scanning say, where can I find something that offends me so I can sound important because I'm offended? So fan persons. Fan persons. Or fan awesome. beings. So yeah. when did you bec- first become a fan person? What was your with, first exposure with to, comic to comics? Yeah. You know, I wish I could remember the exact moment, but uh, it's it's as far back as my memory goes. My first uh, superhero figure was Captain Marvel, the real Captain Marvel, who they now call Shazam uh, due to licensing issues. But I remember back in the days when there was the Mego 8-inch action figures line, the first really good superhero toys, and I didn't know who Captain Marvel was. I knew who Superman was and stuff, but you couldn't even see it. Superman wasn't around as much because it's one of those short pack things. And I'd go into the stores and I'd see this character in this red outfit with the lightning and the cape, and I just thought that was was the greatest and I remember my uh, parents bought me this G.I. Joe, you know, back in the days when they were 12 inch with the real hair and a Kung Fu grip and stuff, got me a whole thing. It was a, he fought a shark and stuff. And I said, I really would rather have Captain Marvel. And they said, well, we'll take this back then. I said, that's fine. I want Captain Marvel. Uh, eventually got Captain Marvel, got into comics. They led me into reading. They led my love of reading. Um, and I learned science from there. Like, you know, if you have a piece of a dwarf star, you can shrink. Like, I learned important science there. But I, it, it just enveloped me. And I have always been, uh, I mean, I'm much more of a DC person than a Marvel person. I've just always loved these characters who were heroes because it was the right thing to do. Which, you know, nowadays, uh, Zack Snyder likes to make that morally ambiguous. That's why his movies tank. But the idea that these were characters, why did they do what they did? Because it was the right thing to do. I guess also, having been brought up in a conservative Jewish household, there was strong notions of what's right and what's wrong. It was never overtly communicated to me that way. But you just got the sense. So the idea of right and wrong of, and people doing things for pure motives, that just appealed to me. And I, I still have every comic I ever bought. I have long boxes. Bought, I can't even tell you how many I have because actually I can't tell you how many I have. Uh, there's that many. And one day I'll actually organize them. But uh, I collected uh, pretty much every DC title for years and years. I have huge runs of them. And then uh, I actually, when the New 52 started with DC, I use it as a jumping off point rather than a jumping on point. I think many people did. And then I came back towards the tail end of New 52 and you know, through Rebirth. And we have, my, my wife Leanna and I have a huge superhero toy and art collection at home. Takes up a massive wall. We had glass uh, displays made just for our toys. And we've got Alex Ross paintings on, you know, on the wall. And we have a life-size E.T. and Yoda made from the actual casts. So you come into our place and you won't see Ed the Sock stuff. You just see superhero stuff. So people say, you work in that business? No. Why do you want to be surrounded by the business you work in? Uh, we're surrounded by the things that we like. Got 
this classic lamp from the 70s uh bedroom lamp with superman and wonder woman or batman on it it's just i love those little treasures you find the old nowadays you can find toys just about anywhere at toys r us or anything like but when i was growing up superhero toys were a rarity and superhero products they weren't everywhere so when i find these things that i remembered when i was a kid and didn't have uh or did have and, and had lost these to me are like my treasures as opposed to anything now that anybody can buy you know toys r us or uh uh, online. That's awesome. I, I remember when I first met you, the, the thing that really uh, told me that you were one of the geeks, one of the tribe, so to speak, was that your Superman wedding band. That was like, yes. whoa, this guy, like he takes it seriously. And I think that's that's how we bonded when we first met. Yeah, for it's, sure. uh, my wife has the, you know, people wonder, is your wife okay with that? My wife has the exact same one. We had it, basically we had it uh, custom made from a mold of an actual Superman ring that we got at the Warner Brothers store. Wow. Um, it's because I used to wear this big, Superman ring, you know, with the big logo. And when uh, I met my wife, she took it and started wearing it. So I got another one. So we had these matching Superman rings. And when it was t- you know we decided to get married, um, we said, well, we should really do something that speaks to us. And so we had these uh, these rings made. And as my wife points out, the Superman shield is basically a diamond. Right. It's it's a diamond wedding ring, just of a different kind. Absolutely. So, what was your shop that you would go to? Like, obviously, you were collecting comics oh. before the direct market. Oh, absolutely. So, my shop was there was a strip mall of about five stores down the street from my house, uh, within walking distance. There was an elderly couple that ran a co- that ran the variety store with the spinner racks, and I would go in with my allowance and I would pick the comics that I could afford to buy that week, and the ones I couldn't afford to buy, they had a special drawer for me, and they would put them aside uh, until I had, could come down with more allowance and buy those. And I was the only customer that had this special treatment that they would put the comics I wanted aside. But I, you know, still you continually miss stuff. In those days, uh, you know, the 50 cent spectaculars, when your allowance is a quarter, that represents a lot. You'd save up for them. And there was a magic. I remember just you know, the magic of either walking or riding my bike down to this little mom and pop store with the spinner rack and you know seeing which in those days you didn't know what comics were coming out when it was always a mystery what's what's going to be on the racks this week you know there was no internet to tell you what's coming out this week or coming out in a month there was no internet journalism there was basically you went down there and what you got is what you got and it was always magical to me because in those days see the thing comic books lost is in those days, the characters were always talking on the covers. It was always these dramatic word balloons as they were speaking to each other. So basically, you were reading the comic book the minute you looked at the, at the cover. It immediately hooked you. Then comics went to like, isn't comic art beautiful? Let's have these beautiful displays. But that doesn't hook you. In those days, there were these really, you know, hyperbolic, Batgirl, don't go there, you'll kill Robin. And, you know, you're immediately hooked in because now I'm actively reading a comic book the minute I look at it. And there was just... I mean, I can even just talking about it now, I just remember what an experience it was to, to go down sometimes after school down to the store. I had some extra money and go and buy the comics and then take them home and sit and read them. I don't know if people have that kind of magic. If kids today can have those kinds of experiences or the equivalent, uh, I don't know how you get the comics delivered to your, you know, your, your tablet. I don't know how they can have that same experience. And I feel bad that uh, people don't have that feeling of discovery in the same way anymore. Right, right, right. So, did you ever want to be a comic artist? Did comics uh, lead into your broadcasting career at all? I don't know if they did that, but I had a neighbor, Richard Levinson, may he rest in peace, was a couple years older than me, 
and we used to come up with comics together. Like we would create them together. He would write the captions and stuff, and I would do the art. I remember we had a character, Crime Killer, who looked a lot like Spy Smasher, because I thought Spy Smasher from the 40s was a really cool-looking design. Meteor Man was one who basically was wearing a, like a red balaclava and a yellow superhero suit, and uh, Scorpion, who was a lot like Batman. Wow. You know, we uh, came up with these comics, and we did them. I also did a comic a number of years later uh, about my former cleaning lady named Balka, who was somewhat superhuman. And so this comic was basically about her superhuman adventures based on a real person. Those I still have. I found them recently. The earlier comics from when I was a kid, I found one page, but the rest of it, Gone with the Wind, which I'd love to look at it now. I mean, you look at it now, it's crude as hell, the art and the story, but there's still, it was a time when people wanted to make stuff. What made Balka superhuman? Well, I remember that when I was a kid, I'd be sitting on the couch and rather than ask me to get off the couch so she could vacuum under it, she would lift <laughs> up the cushion with me on it and vacuum underneath and then put me back down. <laughs> that's that, awesome. Yeah, like that's, there's something superhuman about that woman. And so she sort of grew in legend. Uh, I, I doubt if she's still alive or maybe she's immortal. Actually got uh, Ed the Sock to pitch that comic to Stan Lee. Uh, when we did one of our interviews with him. Wow. And uh, he was into it. He liked that, and he liked Mendel Meyer's Ninja Rabbi. But when Ed pitched the Flatulent Five, um, he <laughs> that was he said, get out of my office. So blew that, but it was very funny for me to be able to present Stan Lee with my childhood creation, Bulka, the, the, the cleaning lady. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. So when you were in broadcasting with Ed the Sock and that sort of thing, you did a lot of pop culture interviews. Like yeah. you, you got to really meet your heroes and delve yeah. into sort of yeah. these sorts of things. Was that something that you ever thought you would be able to do with, with Ed the Sock? Before Ed the Sock, I probably never thought that that would happen. Um, I knew I wanted to be in television or film from a young age, but I don't think I ever connected it with, then I'll get to meet some of these people. Uh, and then when we, when I was able to, it, you know, it's funny that the number of people that with Ed uh, were interviewed, you know, Christina Aguilera at the height of her uh, popularity and uh, Willie Nelson and Coldplay and, you know, Destiny's Child, Beyonce, all these things never impressed me. But when I met Adam West, uh, when I was on Burt Ward's uh, property, you know, he, he was an asshole, but uh, he had this <laughs> great spread. And I can tell you that story if you want, but he had this great spread in Northern California when, uh, and I was a huge fan of the original Battlestar Galactica, when I got a phone message from Dirk Benedict saying, I understand you're looking for me to improve your show, because our, our, we had contacted his publicist. You know, you get a message from someone like that on your phone. And the same with Richard Hatch, late Richard Hatch, went and shot in his, you know, by his house. We were, he was pulling grapefruits off his tree. And with Adam West, we booked him to come into town. And it happened that that weekend, the original Batmobile from the TV series was in town. And those people got in touch. And so we actually did a sequence before the show of Ed pulling up in the Batmobile, Adam West waiting, and then Ed pulling up driving the Batmobile. That's awesome. So I actually got to drive the freaking Batmobile from the TV series. I drove it about 12 feet, but I, I drove the Batmobile. And... Uh, Adam West was, uh, he was a real gentleman. His agent was such an ass. Wow, there's stories there. Um, but uh, Adam West was a, was a wonderful guy. Uh, the Green Hornet, 
you know, met him. He came in and did our show. Kind of funny because same thing happened that there was a guy who had a replica of the Black Beauty, the Green Hornet's car, which I think the guy was from St. Catharines. But he showed up with the car and it, <laughs> the headlights were like tin cans and things like it was not a well-made car. And apparently it wasn't road safe. So they tried to make sure they got it driven during the day because at night they'd get pulled over. And Van Johnson, who played Green Hornet, had brought these official Green Hornet masks, the kind that he wore on the show, which was like a one-piece solid. Right. And he let the guys put them on while posing with their car. And then just before we're about to shoot, Van Johnson says, where's my Green Hornet masks? Turns out the guys had took, had taken them. Whoa. And we're driving back to St. Catharines. And we actually sent somebody in a car to pursue them, to get them. And because they had to drive so slow because the car was barely street worthy, um, they were, managed to catch them, pull them over and get the, uh, the Green Hornet masks. Wow. Yeah. It, it, just odd, you know, those kinds of stories. But, you know, and going to see Stan Lee in his own, you know, in his offices. Um, and him, Stan Lee is, he's a human generator of positivity. Like, when we were seeing him, he was in his 80s. And you would leave there feeling charged, like energized. Because there was just something coming off this man that was so wonderful. His The energies were so one, And he so played with Ed really well. I remember... Ed said to him, Stan, if Spider-Man can do everything a spider can, why doesn't he spin webs out of his ass? And Stan stopped and says, we thought it would be unseemly. <laughs> it was just something about the dignity of that answer. And then to bump into him at a convention, he comes over and says hello. It's like, Stan Lee's coming over to say hi to me? Right. You know, and then did another interview with him again, and he really enjoyed it and bumped into him again. You know, it's like, wow, these people know who I am. He remembers me. Those things are like, wow, you know, TV stars, I don't give a crap. Unless, I mean, meeting Lee Majors was a major religious moment for me. He was a $6 million man. Who There were comic books of the $6 million man, so it sort of fits in. But he was a superhero of the 70s. Uh, these people were the ones that really excited me because they meant something to me. I had a connection with them in my youth. Uh, musicians and uh, actors who are in, in more current popular shows. Eh, yeah. just people doing a job. And Stan Lee's interesting because he, you know, he's Stan Lee. He's like the legend Stan Lee. And he is, you know, that font of positivity that you mentioned. Yeah. You know, but now there seems to be, you know, as people get more aware of like the, the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee sort of labor and that sort of thing, there seems to be sort of a little bit of a back clash towards Stanley in terms of that yeah. because he's unwilling to share the credit unless you unless you ask him directly to but I think personally like but he thinks that the person, people with the ideas are the ones that create I the comic right I think he's backed off on that he, he's acknowledged Jack Kirby's role right for sure I think that Stanley Stanley was management as well as being creative. And as someone who has been talent as well as executive producer, you see sometimes the things, the, the, the deals you have to deal, you know, make with corporations and stuff, with the people who are actually providing the money. Sometimes your hands are tied uh, creatively. And I think that his hands in, in how Jack Kirby was dealt with, his hands were tied. I bet he did as much as he could. But you have to remember in those days, comics were seen as disposable. Right. And what are these guys, th th these guys that draw on the funny books, what are they asking for, you know, to be treated like artists and get their art back? Like, it just wasn't done. It was a completely new concept. And I really believe that Stan Lee did everything that was possible for him. But people think that you're Stan Lee. You ran Marvel Comics as if 
he actually owned it. Right. And rather than being a well-paid uh, figurehead. In and he case. was a figurehead for a long time. Yeah, he was. Not I mean, just he, recently. He did foster the creativity that built it. Right. There's no question. Um, but people assume that he's got, he, he had ultimate power and it was his decision to uh, not give Kirby back his art and things. And there's no way that would have been his decision. That would have been made over his head. And what's he supposed to do? Uh, quit? How does that help artists going forward get a better deal? Right. It doesn't. They'll just bring in somebody who's even more of a, you know, who's a real corporate stooge with no idea, no respect for creativity. It's what happened to Much Music. A lot of corporate people, a lot of accountants, nobody with any respect for creative culture, and they killed it. Yeah, uh, tell me tell me that story because something like the stock would never happen on something like Much Music now. Everything's a little more conservative than it used to a be. A lot more conservative. So how did it happen in the beginning, why were they so receptive at first? And then what happened? How did it die? Well, I'd been doing Ed. I ran a cable station and I've been doing Ed there. And the show got very popular. It was being carried uh, Fridays 1130 around the country on the same time on cable stations. And uh, it got very popular. So we were approached first by CBC, actually. Um, and then Moses approached, actually Jay Switz, Moses and Jay Switzer uh, approached and uh, said, you know, you belong here more. And the truth is we did. CBC, we'd have been there for six episodes before. Internally, they would have thrown us out. City TV and much music, you have to remember at the time, and people who never lived through it uh, don't know this, It the, the purpose of it was to foster creativity, experimentation, creative risk, all the things that are, they, they put the sign of the cross on you if you say that in Canadian television now. But in those days, that was what was going to grow the industry, and that's what did grow the industry. The format for Much Music and for City TV was sold around the world. So there were stations in Colombia and play, you know, Finland. Um, you didn't, you, you still to this day don't see people buying the format of Global or CTV because there's nothing to it. It's a basic format. There was a living, breathing entity that was Chum Television, that was City TV and Much Music, and there weren't focus groups to create shows. Basically, if someone had an idea for a show and they worked there, they would ask a camera person if they had a few hours free, arrange it on their own time, find an editor who would edit it for them, and then present the, the, the show. Um, there was no, let's put it through committee. I mean, towards the end, that started, that's what happened, and that's when it started to fall apart. But uh, it, what was prized there was create, 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 risk, risk, risk. And they were willing to take the shit if some risks went awry. So that's how, you know, Ed fit in there. And how did it go wrong? Well, I don't know how many people that are listening uh, remember George Orwell's Animal Farm. But much music, City TV became uh, four legs good, two legs better, which is that they went away from the thing that made them unique and special and endeared to, to people and started to become more like the people that they had, they originally existed to be different than. Mm. So they lost who they were. Much music, uh, the person in charge of programming at that time told me, our viewers are stupid and just want shit, so we're just going to give them shit, which she did, and the viewers weren't stupid. So it just fell apart. They just wanted to copy MTV. Much music's thing was do our own thing. And when we'd go to the States, people who watched much in the States would say, we like you better than MTV because you do different things. It just became... Copy MTV, copy MTV, the one hundredth of the budget and staff. Creative risk was scared away because people who are insecure in management aren't comfortable with creative risk. And then when uh, it was bought, the new company came in, Bell Media, CTV at the time, CTV Globe Media at the time, came in and basically said, we have more money 
so we know how to do this better. What they didn't understand was the thing that made Much Music Much Music is that it didn't have a lot of money and it didn't hide it. It made it into an asset, to a benefit. And when you start... You know, it's like when you grow up with somebody and you're both from the same income bracket and that person all of a sudden uh, becomes really wealthy. Are you, do you feel comfortable hanging out with that person the same way as before? No, because you're now on different planes. And they canceled uh, Snow Job. They canceled Electric Circus. They basically canceled all the things that made much music much music. Mm-hmm. that made it what it was and then said people don't want to watch much music anymore it's like no it's because you took away much music and you put this thing on called much music which it wasn't it was coasting on the fumes of the things they had canceled and they said you know it's the internet people don't want to watch music videos uh on tv anymore they'll watch them on the internet which was a cop-out because it wasn't what much music just that they played music videos it's how they were contextualized by the personalities uh you know from our show which uh, my wife liana and i took over and produced when we took it over they were the show basically showed cheap foreign videos and made fun of them and cheap you know uh, american videos and our thought was why are we taking shots at people with no resources right. let's take down the people who should know better who have the money to know better and don't so we focused it on the big players and those videos were ones that had been played to death all year long so if much music was only about watching videos fromage would have failed but fromage was their most successful dollar for dollar show like in-house production ever higher than the the mmvas because that cost a fortune and they could only play it so many times and it didn't have the replay value that fromage did so the idea that people stopped watching much music because they didn't want to watch videos was short-sighted. But this is typical of the thinking of analog uh, broadcast thinkers in a world that was changing. They just weren't flexible. Moses was out of chum by that time. I, Moses Neimer, we should yeah, say. Moses Neimer. Yeah, not Moses the biblical figure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, Moses the biblical figure was in there, uh, nor, is he, nor a basketball player. Um, it was uh, Moses Neimer who uh, brought all the ideas together and synthesized the ethos of what City TV and then much music which sprang from it uh, was. He was removed because he wasn't an owner. He was only a shareholder. He was removed and was taken over by committee. And committees are where good ideas go to die. The only good uh, decision a committee's ever made is to adjourn. Because nobody can decide on anything. and everyone... No one will. Yeah. Because nobody is willing to say, I've got a gut feeling on this. No one's willing to, to go out on a limb. And people seem to like to feel smart by criticizing things, by thinking things are shit. Because there's often a million reasons why something won't work. And one reason why it will, which is that you believe it will. You've, you can see it in your mind's eye. If you succumb to, or forced to succumb to all those, well, this won't work because of this or that or the other thing, um, then nothing ever gets made. And that's what's happening now. I mean, the stuff is just, it's just calculated to sell to international markets and to be generic. Cop shows, hospital shows, the stuff that America was making successfully 50 years ago. You know, we're doing it well now. But we're not doing anything that is, and I can't say that across the board, Uh, Kim's Convenience on CBC is an amazing show that is so well written and you can relate to it. You don't have to be Korean. Anybody, I think anybody who's had any immigrant background or any grandparents, any background, you can relate to these characters. The Korean part is maybe a 15th of the show. Mm -hmm. The characters, and, and it does challenge stereotypes. It does um, make comments on social issues, but not by hitting you over the head with it. It does it through characters, and you don't feel lectured. It's just, a, it's a wonderful show. Right. 
but I'm looking around and trying to find anything else. The Beaverton has become much more sharp in its satire, uh, but Canadian broadcast news satire is often so gentle. I mean, this hour is 22 minutes. It makes me vomit because it's smug. And the the jokes are so they're jokes that that when I was uh, producing uh, uh, creative for Strombolopoulos' show for George's show, um, handling the comedy, if the writing team ever turned in shit like that, uh, it, they would be embarrassed. Never mind me having to say try again. Those jokes are so bloody easy, and the, their stuff is so sticky. Now maybe that's what their over sixty audience likes. Right. But if you're trying to get a younger audience, which CBC, it's possible to do so. That stuff's just I. I it's on. I know the tail end of it is on just before a show that I watch, and I cringe for the 30 seconds that it's on. It's like, really? All the talent that is there, and this is what you come up with? Because they're not untalented people. They're not untalented performers. They're not untalented writers. The problem is it goes through what we used to call the shit fire which is you put something in that's edgy and smart, and it comes out as pablum. Right. Um, so it's hard to get the really good stuff through the powers that be. So... All the talent that you see on something like 22 Minutes, in the writing, in the production, in the, uh, in the performers, if they were left to their own devices, I think the show would be so sharp and would rival anything you see from the U.S. And it's unfortunate because that's what people then define as Canadian entertainment. This yeah, is what Canadians are like. Yeah, we, They're not going to We, we step back. When I was hired at CBC, I was asked to make the comedy smarter and funnier. Problem was, it had to go through the same filter that the stuff went through before, which didn't understand smart or funny or was afraid of it. So how do you make something better when it's going through the same filter? It's, you know, even though those are the people that hire you, to do that, you don't know what they really meant by smarter and funnier because you give them smarter and funnier and they go back to stupid and not that funny and generic and inoffensive. And comedy doesn't have to be offensive. Um, But I believe comedy has a strength to to make points and social things that that yelling at people and editorials don't do and so sometimes it's a you have a little sharpness to it we're seeing that in the u.s with the satire stuff uh on trump and his administration there's tremendous power in in comedy there's a reason that the terrorists uh in france attacked a satiric publication and not the newspapers who regularly condemn them because comedy can cut people down to size it cuts the powerful down to size it has tremendous power to change attitudes to you know to open minds but when you're dealing with and dealing with administration that is terrified of that um and doesn't want to offend anybody well if you don't want to offend anybody and you're doing comedy you're not doing comedy did you was that always your goal with other sock to go after people with resources because you're still you're still doing that you're still yeah. you know p- punching up to power and and taking you know taking people down a little bit what was the original conception of the sock was that always what you wanted to do with the character what the longer the short answer uh it doesn't matter whatever you want we have time okay i grew up as a jewish kid in the 70s went to school in an area that was had a, a, a good Jewish proportion, but was primarily white. The attitude, prevailing attitude towards Jewish people in the 70s was, aren't we white Canadians nice people because we let you here? You felt like a guest in your own country. Teachers enforced that too, that uh, you, you just, you were odd. So I was always on the outside, felt on the outside. And my attitude was basically, fuck you, I don't want to belong 
to what you to, to what you determine is the properly constructed society with your your your, your bullshit. I can swear, right? Yeah. Good time to ask now. Um, <laughs> with their 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 bullshit decorum, my attitude was. I'm never going to fit into that, and I don't want to. There's a strength in being the other and embracing it. So I always, with all my material, try to tweak sensibilities, try to tweak those old people, those oh, that old white attitude. And I have nothing against white people. Like, it's not one of those things, but that's who they were in those days, right? And so, yeah, Ed the Sock was an outgrowth of that, which is, we were doing all the things people said, you can't do that on television. Well, Why? You tell me why. Um, I think that real people respond to this stuff more than... Because at the time, CBC was doing shows which didn't reflect Canada. It told us what Canadians were supposed to be. You know, it was, it was cultural mind programming. And so my attitude was, no, this is not what this has to be. It does not need to be bland and safe and inoffensive. And the reason we added the hot tub is not that I, I wanted to see, you know, women in a hot tub. Because I don't, quite honestly, it, it didn't do... From you know, once you're behind the scenes, it's it's not uh, anything. But it was because it was at the time considered really you don't do that. It was rubbing uh, the proper Canada, rubbing its nose in what the real Canada was all about. And we did it. We I mean we changed things for a time. Um, Ed changed things on Much Music for a time, but the times they be a changing. And, you know, if anyone who's a Jew knows, you know, there were rows of Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. New management came in, had no idea that the culture was indivisible from or inseparable from the product and killed it. So now we're back to almost in this, it's much more, Canada's much more inclusive and, and welcoming now. It's a very different place than it was, very different um, and better for it. But in media, we're back to where it was when I brought Ed in in the 90s or when Moses launched City TV in the 70s. We're back to that very constricted, conservative uh, approach to television because they're scared. And it, it, in Canada, I have to understand, in the U.S., making television is a business. In Canada, making television is the cost of doing business. It's very different. You can only, they only make TV here because if they don't make TV, they're not allowed to carry American shows. There's a proportion, a ratio. So the profit motive isn't really there because they have to spend the same amount next year anyway. If, you, if they have a hit, it, that's great. It's like if your kids have a lemonade stand and make a profit. Isn't that lovely? But the goal was to keep them occupied. And that just feels like the attitude in, in Canada, because only in Canada, you got Humble and Fred, okay, right. radio guys, friends of mine, who are uniquely talented in what they do. They should never not be on commercial radio uh, or satellite radio. They should never not be courted and, and be treated like stars. They should, and they had to start their own podcast network themselves. Um, uh, I've been told with Ed the Sock, you have meetings with broadcast networks and they tell you, your brand is too strong. Well, in a populist medium like television, how can a brand be too strong? Right, you it's, have to stand out, right? Yeah, it, especially now you have to cut through the noise. How can a, people who are really pursuing a profit motive, really pursuing success, would never say your brand is too strong. I've never had anybody say nobody cares anymore, because that's not true. People love Ed the Sock, he's still current. You know, the Now Magazine called it Timeless uh, recently. It's all that people are just afraid they're terrified, um, and they don't want to make decisions, so stuff goes to a committee. Anytime someone I, we pitch something, uh, Ed or otherwise, and they say, oh, I'm going to take this to the committee, it's like, nice knowing you. 
Wow. Because nothing gets made. These committees exist so that they can the broadcast network can tell the CRTC, look, we've been meeting with the creative community. Meantime, they, they fund next to nothing. And it's so hard. Like, there's so much criteria. There's so much... You have meetings with... with you know, it's different in different places. Um, but yeah, overall, the meetings, Leanna and I, or the message Leanna and I would get was, they weren't sure what they were looking for. And what we realized was, they'll know what they're looking for once it's been successful in the U.S. for three years. Right. And then they just want to bring it here and slap Canada on it uh, rather than innovate. Canadians, we used to be innovators on the world stage in television media. Innovators. And now we're followers again and terrified of innovation. That's why we're on the net. That's why I started Fun, the FU network, um, which is to bring back that spirit of much music. It's not only about music. It, music's a small part of it, actually. It's more about politics is the new rock and roll. So a lot of political shows are going to be there, as well as just entertaining stuff with good people, honest people, authentic people that people can connect with. And there's audience interactivity modes. It's a chance to take the much music uh, mandate and fulfill it even more now because the interactivity is even more possible. Um, so taking that style of production and content, updating it with social media and modern technology and bringing it out there because people miss it. People who grew up with it miss it. And the younger people never got a chance to experience it. So, and you know, George Strombolopoulos, my friend is doing much the same with the House of Strombo, where he brings big musical acts and audience into his house and they, they play in his house and, I would never let that many strangers in my... In fact, I wouldn't let any strangers <laughs> in my house. Uh, so I give him credit for that. Um, if you want to watch, George was on uh, Ed the Sock Lives uh, recently. So if you go to uh, facebook.com slash ed.thesock, you can find the, the show there. And by now, it may be up on YouTube, which is YouTube slash FU Network. Did you ask him how he prevents people from stealing stuff out of his house? Yeah. Because if you're Strombo... Like, yeah, he do his answer was he doesn't. <laughs> He says nothing. All, in the end, it's just stuff. And uh, he basically trusts people, which he says has been fine so far. And God bless him that he has <laughs> that trust. Uh, you know, the thing is when you're... And this is the interesting thing that, that was asked in the interview last night with George uh, by Ed was, um, if you let people into your house, where's your private space? Because when you're in the media, you need a place that, that, where you don't have to be that media person. You need a space that doesn't remind you that you're in the media. You need a space that's not a workspace where you can be the human being as opposed to the performer. Um, and he says that, that, that that's in his head when he rides his motorcycle to L.A. every summer. Um, so he approaches it very differently. With me, my house is that space. And I very rarely, we very rarely have people in. Now, we live in, in Markham, so people don't, <laughs> they don't just sort of frequently walk by. Right. Um, but don't have people over very much because that's my house you know that's my space and uh, it t it tells a lot about who i am and when you're in the media you don't always want everyone to know uh who you are i mean in some cases there's a reason as you see with all these people in the sex scandals um you don't want them to know who you, you know, who you really are in my case it's just you know I, I i put something out there uh through through ed and through the political podcast i'm doing now but there's a point where you want to have a space where you know it's yours and it hasn't been the place that's been trampled on by the by the public right now that you're on the new media you're on youtube yeah 
it's obviously different than being on broadcast television. Oh yeah. But are you still getting the same amount of te- attention that you did on broadcast television? Do people are you still fighting the perception that like maybe you're you're gone or are people sure, just I mean, moving with you? Um we get about 50 to 75,000 uh, views for our show, which we have not advertised. It's been completely under the radar because we wanted to experiment with the format. In in the in the days of uh, much music, fifty to seventy five thousand was a huge number um, for a show. So we're getting when people know it's there, they find it, they stay. Um, and we're on, we're working with an advertising agency in the new year to let people know it's there um, and the the new shows for the network. Um, sure, there's always going to be perhaps a perception that if you're on uh, the internet, it means you can't get on TV. Right. And you know what? Part of that is true. If I was offered uh, proper money, would I put Ed back on TV? Sure, if it was the right project and we had the right, you know, you have to, we've maintained the brand now for years. We're not going to violate it. You know, have this idea of basically a Curb Your Enthusiasm type show, but starring Ed in in the real world and interacting with everybody. Which now, you know, the chance of it getting greenlit with all this fear about sexual harassment and inappropriate stuff. People say, you had a hot tub. It's like, yeah, we had a hot tub, which was also feminist expression because the women chose, they were never directed with what to do. They weren't directed, they were directed at some points to wear because there were certain theme ep- out, uh, episodes, but they could always say yes or no to their costumes or their outfits. They had names, they could talk whenever they wanted to. They weren't objects, you know, they were, the idea of feminism is that women being able to express themselves in ways that they're not judged for. Well, it's funny because the people who fought hard for feminism are the ones now judging women who don't choose to to follow the acceptable route, you know, who choose to use their femininity. Um, But that argument's a loser these days. You can't, you can't even begin to make that argument. Poor Al Franken gets uh, tossed out of the, the Senate for basically what it sounds like to me is stupid pranks and jokes that didn't land very well because his delivery is very dry. So he, if he said something to somebody who doesn't know his humor style, it, they might think that he was being serious. So, and he didn't even get a chance to explain. All he said was, I, I don't remember it exactly that way, but I apologize for, because the minute you start saying, well, that, no, I'm sorry, that's not exactly how it happened. Then you're just an enabler of, of sexual harassment. There's no idea. That, no, this could have just been a really big misunderstanding. In the case of Al Franken, I think it was just, stupid pranks. And I think there are some people like him who are being blamed now for the way society, the the cultural norms of then, you know, it's like, as opposed to, hey, this was considered acceptable back then. So doing it wasn't considered unacceptable. Rather than accepting that fact and looking at it in the context of the times, people are judging people through the enlightenment and awareness that we have now, which is not fair. Like, you know, there's if you think of all the great Canadians in Canadian history, I guarantee you most of them, if not all of them, were huge anti-Semites. Um, <clears throat> am I going to not talk about them or not give them their due? No, because in those days, everybody was a huge anti-Semite. Right. Now, it's an indication of, you have a choice. You know that doing it is wrong. You know that doing it is, is the wrong thing to do. Back then, it wasn't. And you can only blame people so much for... Um, being part of a cultural milieu that uh, they didn't create and that told them X is acceptable, Y is not acceptable. Um, Now, sexual assault is never okay. I don't care when it was. You always know it's wrong. Forcing yourself actually physically on a woman, uh, grabbing, uh, demanding that they give you sex for, for in exchange for things. 
that's disgusting and that was disgusting then it's that's but things that could usually wind up being a misunderstanding are now being shown as some pattern of bad character as opposed to look the times were different things were different i'm sorry uh i didn't realize that you know we didn't know back then and it's a dumb excuse that people think but we didn't things were there were things that we did on ed the sock that i would never do now because right. times were different. We were challenging the status quo. We were as left-wing as you could get, without, but we didn't seem it. Because Ed was for gay marriage and gay rights long before it was considered popular on television. Ed's take was, hetero men should embrace gay men because homosexuality takes these well-groomed, attractive, polite, good-looking guys off the market, leaving more for the slobs leaving more straight women for the slobs. Um, so that was sort of a way of trying to make guys more comfortable with gay uh, stuff. But we were on the forefront of that. But stuff that was liberal, even considered liberal back then, nowadays seems wrong. And you know what? As we progress and learn as a society, yeah, our eyes are opening. We're realizing things were insensitive that we that our cultural messaging wasn't telling us then, and it's right now to 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 say going forward we're not accepting this. Right. But I think that if we go back to lots of people who did things twenty years ago or whatever or fifteen years ago, even things have changed so fast, um, and we're blaming them because they did what society said was okay back then. Uh, and again, sexual assault and stuff was never considered okay. Those are crimes. Right. And Al Franken's accused of, you know, forcibly kissing people in a sketch, which I think was a sketch gone awry. Well, and there was that photo, too. The photo of him not not touching the woman's breasts. There was a shadow between his hands and the breasts. I look at that and just go on the Internet and see what guys have done to other guys who were sleeping. Mm -hmm. You know, they they take their penis and rest it on the guy's head. They draw penises on the guy's face. They I mean, this is not that was not a thing that was done because she was a woman. It's a it's a frat boy thing that men do to men. um, And there's always been a frat boy attitude in in comedy he was just doing it was it was a schmucky thing to do but he wasn't actually touching her and i don't think it was because she was female i think had she been male and asleep he would have done something else right right you know it's just you have to look at it in that context people guys do this to guys all the time so it's not something that we're that's done to prey on women and in comics too like they're dealing with they're dealing with it like with cosplay has always been an area yeah. that you know it's always been fraught with that sort of thing and like what's okay and what's not and well you know my wife Leanna did a lot of cosplay right and a lot of it was uh, characters that showed uh, some skin and the number of times somebody said can I have a picture with you and they'd stand there they'd pose as soon as the as the person would click the guy would grab her ass. Right. Um, she just stopped bothering noticing it because they wanted to rise out of you when they didn't get it. They were their, their penises shrunk or the people would walk by when a picture was being taken and grab her ass as they were behind her walking by. Um, one time this guy uh, said, can I have a picture? So took a picture. And as the camera's about to click, he turns and kisses her on the mouth. Wow. That is like, that's where she drew the line. Right. That's full on assault. The slapping on the ass. There was a time that was considered not polite but not a terrible sin it was considered saucy or whatever the hell right and uh, i mean for women it always felt like shit i understand that right um and we understand that now but she was like well whatever if this makes them happy i don't give a shit they're not actually harming me and if she ignored them it made them feel worse than if they hadn't done it at all um but you know 
people do that. The the women like to dress up in cosplay outfits. Most fantasy and superhero outfits show a lot of skin. And so guys, you know, there's that cosplay is not consent movement, which is just because someone's dressed that way, they're not advertising that they want you to touch them. Right. Um, which should be, in this day and age, common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, well, she was, she was dressed like Red Sonia, so she wanted me to grab her boob. Come on. You know that's not true. Um, but people were hiding behind this idea. So it had to come out there and say, no, someone dressing like that is not inviting you to assault them or to say dirty things to them. But again, that's just terrible behavior that's always been terrible behavior and seen as terrible behavior. And it's not funny. It's not jokes. It's being an asshole uh, or worse. And comics are... Uh, you know, trying to address within their content um, more gender uh, equity, gay and lesbian characters um, with some with greater and lesser success. The best characters are ones who happen to be gay or happen to be lesbian, not the lesbian character. Right. Um, because we have to re- reach a point where what you're getting to, which is that that's an aspect of someone's life. It's not their entire life. You know, Batwoman uh, is a lesbian, and yeah, she deals with a romantic life. But more than Bruce Wayne does as Batman. But she's not Batwoman because she's a lesbian. Right. You know, it's not relevant. Recently, I was doing some introductions uh, at a comedy show. And a young woman came up to me and said, Would you do me, just do me a big favor. Can you just, just not announce me as a lesbian uh, comic? And I was sort of, I, I looked at her dumbfounded. And I said, why would I? It's not relevant whatsoever. If it was if the show was a queer comedy show and it was relevant to something and they asked me to introduce her that way, I would. But otherwise, it's like you're best to be judged right now. You're putting yourself out there on your comedy, not on your, your, your sexual orientation. But obviously, people have been asked her before. They have. Did that. And that's what she said. That's why she was so surprised that I was like, huh? Uh, I, would, I wouldn't even think of that. But you know what? Maybe years ago, I would have. Um, and maybe years ago, I would have thought it was a chuckle. Mm-hmm. There were uh, times that maybe I should have stepped up. I look back now um, and realize that while it was okay for the time and stuff, I would never, I, I would say something now or I never witnessed any assaults or things like that. And on our show, even though there was women walking around in, in, in bikinis and things like that, I hope none of them ever felt uh, disrespected in any way. Because I always look these women in the eye. And talk to them like they were just, they were, they were performers, they're professionals, no different than me. Um, their outfits were different. So what? We tried to create an atmosphere where everybody felt like family, where it wasn't lascivious. Right. Um, there was somebody on staff who was inviting women to have sex with him and his girlfriend uh, who worked on the show. And he was in a position of authority and we let him go. It was Leanna who said, this can't be allowed. I said, well, you know, the, the women are saying they want to do it. Just, it doesn't matter. We can't allow it. And she was right. Yeah. Um, well, because now we're learning if you're in a position of authority, like yeah. they're saying yes, because you're in a position. See, of authority. he wasn't in a position of authority, authority, but they might have thought so. Right. And you never know. I mean, if it was their consent, nobody ever complained about it happening. And it was, never happened on our set, never happened on anything, any event to do with us, nothing. It was all completely in their private lives. But you have to be aware now that, uh, sorry, even though they, they've consented, don't do it. Right. Don't do it because you never know when years later somebody can have a regret or actually think, you know what, was I really thinking, was I really doing it because I wanted to or was I just trying to fit in because it might get me in better with people who are higher up on the show. I never want that kind of thing. So even when I used to deal with porn stars as Ed, always looked them in the eye. Always first thing I did when I met them is talk about my wife. To make it clear, this is a, we're doing a, a comedy bit here. This is not about sex. Um, they would be naked. 
and stuff didn't matter we'd shoot on porn sets didn't matter treated them like anybody else because they were just professionals doing their job and treated them with respect um i don't know why that's so hard for people to do maybe it's becoming less hard because there's less demand on men to be men and to you know look at that ass like stuff like that i i hate that i'm a man not a guy right you know i have no interest in hanging out with the guys and scoping out women i just please it's just it's never been appealing to me there is that sense of entitlement right that that sort of you know what i think it is amongst men It isn't so much necessarily a sense of entitlement, it's a sense of obligation. When they're hanging amongst other men, I mean, there's the sense that you're expected to make comments like that, to indicate you're still a, a virile, sexual, masculine person. And I, because I know there's times guys have said things, and I said, guys, come on, that's not, and they're like, yeah, you're right, you're right. They're just waiting for one person to say it's not okay so that they can then follow and say, you're right, I don't agree with it either. Uh, it's just, they're going along with the social dynamics because they don't want to be the odd man out. As I said, I've never given a shit about being the other. So I have no problem saying, come on, guys, don't, don't say that. Uh, or don't, th- you know, and the guys, very rarely do I ever have somebody say, what's the matter with you, you fag? Like, you know, you very rarely get that now. You get more people saying, you know what, you're right. It's just social dynamics and social pressures and social messaging. And more men need to be able to recognize that it is masculine to stand up and say, don't talk about a woman that way. Right. Don't speak about, you know, when they're talking about coworkers, it's like, that's someone you work with. That's someone you're supposed to respect. Don't talk to them like that. Don't think of them like that. Don't don't put them in that that headspace right because that's not who that's not the nature of the relationship guys just need to feel more comfortable stepping up and saying what i think they really feel which is i'm not comfortable with with talk like that exactly yeah that's that's amazing so i want to go back a bit we mentioned earlier in the conversation how like canadians in media used to be groundbreakers and now we're following the americans and i remember a time at least when the Americans were following you specifically because there was Triumph yeah. the Insult Comic Dog on Conan. Yeah. And that's that's got to be a direct ripoff of it you. Is. Like, he what? claims it isn't. Okay. But the story there is that I was sending VHS tapes, is how long ago it was, to uh, the head talent person for Conan O'Brien, the tapes of Ed, and we had a couple conversations, and there was some interest. Then all of a sudden, no, no, we decided we're not going to go with that. We decided we're not going to, you know, we're not going in that direction. Were you trying to cross over into the American market? I was, yeah, I was trying to get Ed yeah. on, on yeah. Conan. Yeah. I thought it would fit. And uh, then it was like a week later that someone said, hey, congratulations for getting on Conan. I, thought, I don't know what you're talking about. People thought that the dog was, was Ed or some that it was me doing a slightly different character because it was so similar. And it was their head writer who came up with it. Now, when you're dealing with the head talent person, who at the time was dating Conan O'Brien, and then the same idea appears from the head writer and you understand how incestuous those were like it's not like they're separated like army units uh they all work together and talk to each other becomes very hard to believe that something that similar just occurred but ed evolved from where what ed started as which was doing vaudeville shtick jokes and insult comic shit ed evolved to you know voicing over uh 
uh, award-nominated, almost award-winning uh, documentaries about things like uh, sexism and racism and stuff like that. You're never going to get the dog to do that. The dog still does the same three taglines or whatever the hell. Ed has evolved into a commentator on social issues. So we started in the same place, but not in the same place now. Right, right. Cool. So because your favorite comic character was Captain Marvel and they, they announced that movie and that sort of thing, yeah. I want to get your take on the DC Universe because like the movie Justice League, yeah, because Justice League has failed. All the movies have not really been good at, or critically received. And now they're doing a movie or they announced a movie with your favorite character. Well, I should say that my favorite character is actually Superman. Oh, okay. Uh, but they, they've Marvel wrecked Superman my, in ways too. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. Suit, they, they lost. They lost. The problem was, I mean, Zack Snyder said that it, for him, these superhero movies are about the political, about the social, about the thing. To me, the, this whole idea of what if superheroes existed in our world is like saying, what if Blue was red um well then it would be red what if superheroes existed in our world then it wouldn't be our world this is absurd we like these things because they're escapist fantasies we like them because they're places where good is good heroes are good uh, wonder woman did so well she was a hero who did what was right because it was right she had a, she had a feeling that there are certain things wrong and she had ability to do things to make it better and she did it and it was a wonderful movie it was i compare it in its in its epic sense to 1978 superman the movie in the sense of it's the true essence of heroism Right. You know, to me, the idea of coming out of a successful superhero movie is when you come out of that movie saying you would like to be that superhero. You know, I came out of Wonder Woman saying I would love to be Wonder Woman because just so appealing. Zack Snyder was, first of all, Zack Snyder, to my knowledge, has never made a good movie. Uh, the 300, he just took the panels from the comic book, replicated them, and put everything in slow motion. Right. The movie should have been about 10 minutes, but everything was in slow motion. He's never made a good movie. And... Uh, they gave him the DC universe. Why, after Man of Steel, they let him keep going forward? He completely misunderstood the point of Man of Steel. And that was Warner Brothers, And he too. disliked Superman. Yeah. Openly disliked yeah. Superman. I mean, Warner, this is Warner Brothers' fault. Because after the Dark Knight trilogy did well from Nolan, they said, we should do Superman that way, too. Which is, it, it's absurd. Um, because... Batman suited that particular approach. Right, there's a contrast between it's, them. Yeah, the light Superman the dark. is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. People want Superman to be bright and hopeful. And when you went and saw this thing where the character was ambivalent about being a hero, and his father encourages him to let people, let kids in a bus die, rather than reveal himself, like, what? what is this? What cynical... It's like, I, I can't stand people who take those Scooby-Doo characters and have them smoking weed on t-shirts. It's like, can you not leave shit alone? Can you not leave shit in the magic of where it was created do you have to fucking sully it and that's what they did with superman is they they just dirtied him up with angst i think that uh cavill was a decent superman i think brandon routh was an amazing superman in a shitty movie right um but they, they, you know, that was dark, and people didn't really like it. The uh, And then they follow it up with other movies, which continue to be dark. They continue to allow Snyder to do it. Batman versus Superman was a disaster. It was terrible on every level. Horrible. It's the reason Justice League has tanked, because people were willing to give Batman versus Superman a chance, but it was so bad that they they know, oh, the same people are responsible for Justice League? I'm not, ta I'll watch it on, on, you know, on Netflix one day. The darkness, it's like every... The sky in all of Zack Snyder's superhero movies looks like Ground Zero at 9-11 with 
dark and debris in the air suspended in the air there's just such darkness and red there's like red blood tones yeah it's just it's awful it's depressing and no one wants to go see superhero movies which are supposed to be colorful to be depressed and i mean today the news came out that they're doing a big shuffle at dc films dc films may cease to exist and just go under the warner brothers banner right and Zack snyder will not be having anything to do other than obligatory contractual credits on the movies he'll have nothing to do going forward with dc movies it's clear that they need like a kevin feige like somebody who rules with an iron fist who knows what they're doing and has a vision and jeff johns was supposed to be that yeah and i but i wonder how much power he really had right first of all jeff johns is stretched so thin over publishing uh merchandising all this stuff he's stretched so thin and how much autonomy he really had versus john berg who's the real movie guy who knows Um, and that was certainly Justice League was already in the works before Johns was elevated into a position of supervision it's interesting that the the movie that's done the best Wonder Woman is the one that Zack Snyder had absolutely the least to do with although they did Snyder the third act a little bit yes yeah yeah it's, it'll be interesting to see going forward because they're taking it seriously. They're really thinking about what do we do now? Um, are they going to do another Superman movie? I hope they do because the one good thing Justice League did is it redeemed Superman. Right. It brought Superman back from that whiny New 52 uh, that no, character no one liked to this character who does crack jokes and who is positive and you know okay so they redeemed superman so i'm interested in seeing superman that superman going forward and it seems like if you at least in the ultimate cut of batman vs superman like in the context of what happened to batman vs superman as shitty a movie as it was justice league makes more sense it seems like at least they're using the consequences of batman versus superman to make something a little uh, bit more positive well and the thing yeah batman becomes more positive right. becomes more optimistic right. but you know after superman dies yeah, um, exactly uh, spoiler alert um but the thing is the i found justice league if you took out the superman resurrection storyline justice league was an okay movie Right. You know, if you took that out, it was now with all the the money and talent that went into it, it's inexcusable to make an okay movie. With characters that popular, it's inexcusable to make something only okay. Right. I I liked it, but I wanted to feel like, oh my God, this is transcendent. Yeah. I mean, I hated The Flash. Every time he opened his mouth, I wanted to smash him in the face. (laughs) I hated The Flash. Everyone said they loved The Flash. Hated The Flash. And uh, it was not bad without the Superman resurrection thing. The Superman resurrection thing, they, they become grave robbers digging up a corpse. And they're actually lifting Superman's corpse and walking it into into water and then electrifying. It's like, what the hell is this movie? It was horrendous. That, that, that is not how Superman should have... They should have just said Superman seemed to die because with the readings that we can tell with human bodies, but he's Kryptonian. He's back. Right. Like it, the, and it made more sense because they, at the end of Batman vs. Superman, you have the rising the, of the dirt and everything, yeah, right? Yeah. So obviously he's not really he's dead. He's not really dead. But then he was. And they're, they're carrying this corpse of Clark Kent in the traditional blue suit with the red tie. I'm like, what are we watching here? This is like a bad schlocky horror movie. They're take, they're, they're defiling a corpse. What if it didn't work? And, and they they're making, the... they're making references to schlocky horror movies with Pet yeah. Cemetery while they're doing a schlocky horror movie. Cyborg is digging up a grave. Super, the Justice League doesn't go at night and dig up somebody's grave with a lantern and uh, you know, <laughs> not a Green Lantern. A la- like, who does this? This is like Frankenstein territory. It, that so through and first of all it stopped the movie dead it didn't make any sense and here's the dumb thing at the end of super uh, of justice league 
when uh, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent are on the Kent farm. Why didn't Clark introduce Bruce Wayne to Martha? Right. Martha was the big turning point in Batman vs. Superman. Why didn't he say, hey, by the way, this is the Martha I was talking about? It was just, you could tell where, jo- where uh, Joss Whedon dropped his stuff in, because it was obvious. And I don't, I'm not a Joss Whedon fan. Um, I thought it was obvious and not that funny. Uh, I think Joss Whedon's another overrated hack. Hopefully we're going to get some, now DC had said just even before today, that they're going to allow these movies going forward. They'll be in the same universe. They'll mention each other, but they don't have to be tied together. Right. Um, and they're going to let people have individual visions like they did with patty jenkins so i i believe that uh the captain marvel movie i refuse to call it shazam um i believe that movie can be a really good hopeful it could be the new superman movie because the idea of a kid who's become a big superhero it's like tom hanks big but with superheroes done well that character can Re- it's funny because that character could could in market in merchandising and stuff could eclipse Superman the way Captain Marvel eclipsed Superman in sales back in the 1940s before uh, DC sued them out of existence. Well, and it'd be weird if the movie version of Captain Marvel is more Superman than the movie version of Superman. There's there's a boyishness, the a, a, a childhood wonder that is innate in Captain Marvel. I mean, it, you know, as a kid, the idea that I could just say Shazam and turn into this hero, my like. Loved that. There's just a sense of, and superhero movies should touch the inner child in all of us, the exist, you know, the, the eternal child in all of us. And I think that they're, the casting they've done, uh, Zachary Levi as as Captain Marvel, and the kid they cast as Billy Batson, who's a kid, it all looks bright and hopeful. And I really believe that they're going to do. Uh, I, I'm hopeful that it's possible they will do a good job. Um, I think it's weird that Black Adam is now not going to be in the movie. He's going to be in his own movie. I don't, if that ever comes to pass. It's the overexposure of Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, it's just, I I don't know how it'll, how are you going to get people to go see a movie called Black Adam when no one knows who the hell Black Adam is? (laughs) You know, it's like Captain Marvel, Shazam, as people know him, People understand that, they've seen it. They're probably not as familiar with Captain Marvel Jr. or Mary Marvel uh, or Savannah, the villain, or Mr. Mind. So they're sure as hell not going to be familiar with Black Adam, who in the original run wasn't a character that was around all that much. You're going to make a movie and hope that people go see it because because it's uh, Dwayne Johnson? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Him as a villain... Uh, or the you know he's sort of a, a, a anti-hero in a Captain Marvel movie, absolutely. But I wonder whether they'll uh, all those movies they announce that they're going to make. Don't expect them all to get made. The Batman by Matt Reeves will get made, and it won't be Ben Affleck. Yeah, um, they still talk like apparently John Hamm wants to do it. Yeah, uh, well, which would be hard to fit him into that cod piece, according to legends about him. Um, <laughs> that's a bat pole. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it. it, it, it uh, it's interesting. They're talking about making the Flashpoint movie, which they say they may use to reset the DC universe. Right. So you're not going to... Why do I want to go see a different Flash in the movie when I'm happy enjoying the Flash on television? Right. Why do I need this? Like, there's no... Com- the reason people want to see the Wonder Woman movie and give it a try is for years people really wanted to see Wonder Woman on the screen. Mm-hmm. You know? Um do I really need to... See, I, I see the Flash. I'm happy with the Flash that I get in media right now. Um, do I really want to spend money to go see this annoying quipster, uh, a, a whole movie about him? That's a misstep. I don't think you're going to get people going to see it. It's you, You're already satisfying that desire 
uh, amongst Flash fans and the general public. So why would you go forward with a movie? At this point, they should just cancel Flashpoint, uh, do the Batman movie, and do it completely differently. Do it like a de- I think they should emphasize his detective skills more, and do another Superman movie with a different director who's got a bright, shiny vision. But in the meantime, put, they should put all their energy into promoting Captain Marvel. Shazam. Because I think that could be the thing that chain that, that that sets the 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 tone for going forward for the DC universe. That could redeem them if it's a good, positive, happy movie. Right, for sure. Uh, finally, I wanted to go back to the beginning of the conversation in the sense that you said earlier that you left comics for a time and now you're back with yeah. the end of New Fifty Two and Rebirth. What yeah. brought you back, and why did you leave in the first place? I left because I didn't like what was being done with the characters in the New Fifty Two. Actually, the reason I left was I was so angry about the dissolution of the Superman-Lois Lane marriage. Uh, I was like, wow, you guys just can't write a decent marriage, a decent, you know, man-woman partnership, and so you're just going to get rid of the thing? Superman feels like a character should be married. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it suits him. Um, and the idea that they were just going back to him being dating again, it's like, you know what? Superman and Lois Lane being single... I read those comics growing up. I read hundreds of them. I don't need to read them again. And I did sample a couple of them. It's like, the Superman and Lois are just barely friends? Like, this is... Fuck this. And Superman is this whiny alien who feels all alone. No, Superman is an, uh, is a, an alien who feels really American because he was raised American. Um, so it was just, they were trying to appeal to 15-year-old angry kid, angry boys, and it didn't work. And then when they did the Convergence event where they brought back the pre-crisis versions of, of characters, uh, I, I, I read that. I understand I'm one of the few. Um, but I did read the Mr. and Mrs. Superman miniseries, which led them to realize Superman and Lois Lane being married, good thing. And that sort of, it's funny because the Superman-Lois Lane relationship is what led to the New 52. Them trying to find a way to break up that marriage um, led to the creation of that, the New 52. And them working so well, uh, as written by Dan Jurgens in Mr. and Mrs. Superman series, is what led them to say, we really need to go back to having the real Superman and not the whiny guy. Well, and didn't they say that the whiny guy wasn't even the real Superman? Yeah, he wasn't. He was an aspect. Of, we're still not sure the whole plot. It has something to do, I believe, with the Watchmen and Dr. Manhattan. And I like the way that's unfolding. It's pretty awesome. Uh, with the Doomsday Clock. I like the way that's been unfolding with Mr. Oz in, in the Superman books. The Superman books have probably never been better than they are now, and that's because they've included his son mm-hmm. who's a great character if people aren't reading the super sons book with uh, damien uh, as robin and john kent a superboy you're missing one of the best comics out there it's amazing isn't it amazing between the, the two of them oh, the banter yeah it's amazing it's amazing it's such a good book and superman as a dad as a, as a husband and father it gives it they always had a problem with dc like he's so powerful so let's make him uh, weak on the inside you know unsure uh, questioning all that shit he never had they didn't have the motivation for him or, or a weakness now as a father and a and a husband you understand his motive like there's a couple of times he says i'm not letting you know stay the hell away from my son he's got that motive now that so he doesn't need to sit there in angst and it just feels right and the characters are being written really well lois lane is written very much as a complete equal you know, a, a necessary part of Superman. His uh, the boy uh, John Kent is the personality is great. He could be in a bad writer's hands. He would be possibly grating, but in the hands of the writers that have been writing him, Peter Tomasi and, and Jan Jurgens, great. Like 
it just feels like a good comic. And every time I read a Superman comic now, I'm like, this is the Superman I really love. And But it's an evolved Superman. It's a Superman you love, but taken further. Well, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's further. He's a, he's a husband. He's a father. Um, the, uh, the thing I don't like is they didn't keep the Kents being alive, which uh, John Byrne did in The Man of Steel. I thought that was great. And that they, the idea of the family having you know, even, even just Ma Kent alive would have been a nice extension. Uh, but DC's even made Batman less of a dick. Batman was such a dick for so long in the 90s. Like, just such a dick. It's the Frank Millerization. Yeah, he was such an asshole. But now, I mean, if you read Batman uh, that just came out this week, which deals with the Batman-Superman relationship, he's cracking jokes. He's, you know, he's, he's not that loner, that angry loner. That's the thing about, you know, Let's treat Batman as if he was real. No, Batman cannot be real. Don't tell me that he just pushed himself to the limits of human endurance. No, no human could endure that. He'd be popping Vicodins like candy. Like, there's just no way. Batman is as ridiculous a character as Superman, as far as reality. Actually, more so. Because Superman, they created a reality. Okay, he comes from someplace with a yellow sun. They've given you an explanation for why he would have superhuman powers. No one has given an explanation for why Batman, who was a, a mortal human, can withstand that kind of damage to his body um but they've made him likable again you know and uh my wife liana hated batman because he had just become such a dick and they've they've started to make him more human again right which i'm glad i'm glad that the rebirth had happened and that they're putting that sense of wonder uh back into the the dc universe and i'm glad that uh you know it's i think 35 to 40 percent of new readers of comics are women Right. And I think that's amazing. I think that's I think the reason for that is that women don't have to go into comic stores anymore. Yeah. Comic stores were hostile places. You'd go in there, there'd be a bunch of fanboys looking at you like, you don't really belong here. This is our clubhouse. Um, and it was not a, a friendly place. And, uh, you know, the one we used to go to, you always hear the comic stores going, you know what? Women don't understand. Like, and Leanna wanted to fucking pop the guy. But I think that now that they're able to buy them in uh, bookstores and buy them online, all my comics now I get uh, through Comixology on tablets because I haven't got storage space anymore for comics. And I thought I would never read comics that way, but I really enjoy it. That has allowed women to, to, to participate in these characters without having to go into this hostile territory uh, every week to get their comics. Well, and the thing is, comic stores are changing too. They're becoming more like coffee shops or galleries. Ex- or exactly. Those sorts They're of things. smart. The ones that are smart. There's a place out in Edmonton called Happy Harbor Comics. Uh, Jay Bardilla runs it. He's won some awards. It's a great place because it's actually a community hub. He has a space where people can just hang out. Um, he's got regular activities going on there, clubs and so on. It really is a hub for the community and doesn't feel so insular. Whereas now, I mean, there's rivalries between who goes to what comic shop. It's <laughs> it's absurd in Toronto, but the idea of creating spaces like Starbucks or like Chapters has play has a Starbucks in it, or like, like the comic book lounge and gallery when it was open. I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know if you went there. Yeah, no, yeah, of the course. Sidekick too. Like the sidekick is coffee shop, comic shop. So they get clientele that are coming in for coffee, yeah. and then they get introduced to a curated selection of comics, right? Yeah. So that's going to sustain your business model, absolutely. even if the comics aren't aren't selling. And, and obviously a lot more toys and so on, because that has a market now. Right. And uh, Spider-Man's never been, like, the Marvel Universe never been my favorite. I always found their characters kind of blah. I liked Spider-Man in the 70s and Fantastic Four in the 70s, I thought they were really good then, but I've never been into the whole, oh, woe is me. 
I'm a superhero. Never got into that shit. There's been some well-read stuff, and I there were a number of comics I did collect for a long time, but I'm glad the Spider-Man movies and Iron Man and stuff, I'm glad Captain America, these movies have made superheroes popular for kids. Um, I still see kids wearing Superman clothes, and I love it, and when I see them now with Spider-Man or Iron Man or Captain America stuff they wouldn't have had without the movies, I just love that kids, that sense of wonder still exists. If it's been preserved through moving media as opposed to uh, comic media, you know, written media, okay, but kids are still getting the chance to see these heroes and uh i'm glad that that there's still the sense of superheroes are cool amongst this cynical generation that that, that's been raised right that's awesome it's a perfect place to end but i want to just get to know where people can find you um i understand that you're you're trying to write a memoir or something so i want to talk about your legacy a little bit um what what is your goal going going forward and where can people follow uh that goal the memoir is something which will probably never happen i have so many stories that are very very funny because okay. you know experiencing through ed the sock the politics of tv dealing with various big name celebrities and stuff it's the kind of stuff that nobody's ever experienced like it's a completely different window but i just don't have the discipline um to write it um i'm thinking about putting it in a series of video things just talking to camera and talking about them my goal is to rebuild Canadian media, the ground level, peer level Canadian media that was lost when Much Music full, put those black windows up and blocked people from, from looking in. I want to restore that communal sense. Much Music was you know, much more so than City TV because Much Music was national. It's a part of our cultural heritage. And that was a channel that was built cooperatively between producers, talent, and the audience. It was a collaboration. So somebody taking it away, you can't. It belongs to Canada. We deserve that uniquely Canadian approach to television, which is so self-aware and, and you know, down-to-earth, connected. Um, so I want to bring that back. Uh, I want to uh, do it on the internet, because that's where it belongs. That's where City TV, if it was to be born today, we'd be born on the internet, where you can experiment and do things creatively. Um, I want to bring back that experience for people they can participate. It feels like them. They're looking at people who look like them, uh, talk like them, uh, whether it be our politics shows, our gaming shows, uh, women's issues, social issues, comedy, music. It's Our, our slogan is smart ass begins with smart. So the idea is this stuff's got to be clever. I don't want, we don't do smug. Um, you know, go, aren't we smarter than them? <laughs> All those politicians hate that shit. Um, so the goal is to restore that, build it up, build a place where young people can come in and learn from people experiencing how to produce stories. Because just because people can get a camera now and uh, broadcast on the internet doesn't mean they know how to tell stories. So a way to teach people how to effectively use media and a way for older people to learn uh, the, the strengths and uniqueness of new media from the younger people, like a, a meeting of the generations, um, and create amazing content. And I encourage people to watch uh, Ed the Sock Lives on uh, the FU Network. It's on, uh, you can find it at YouTube slash FU Network. Go there. Also, you can find Ed at uh, Twitter, uh, at Ed the Sock. The Facebook page is The Real Ed the Sock. There is a uh, Snapchat but I don't know. I think it's just dead the sock. I don't know what it is now, and I should. So that's that's what the plan is going forward. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure Thank uh, you for to talk to you. It's been it's been amazing. Uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe and uh, yeah, subscribe, people. Yeah, and visit all our social media at Speech Bubble Pod everywhere: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Thank you to our sponsors, uh, Harry Tarantula, and uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Hey again, fanboys and fangirls. Aaron Broverman here. Thank you for listening to Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I wanted you to know that NSN features other amazing podcasts created right here in Toronto. Comedy and wrestling fans, check out Casey Corbin's wrestling podcast, Talkin' Wrestling, here on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Thanks for listening.